when you were in it? Like you're a good student, you like school. Six of you, okay. <laughs> For real? Seven, okay, okay. Thank you, Miss Diane. I see that hand, I see that hand. Okay, so the, I, to, I'm to assume the rest of y'all just are like, mm-mm. I did not like school at all. I hated it. Sweet. So I'm going to stand up here and teach. And uh, <laughs> so I really liked school myself. I, I, uh, it's not a popular opinion, um, but I, I enjoyed school. I enjoyed studying. Uh, it kind of... I, it came easy for me, uh, and I think it's because my mind was geared for this type of learning. You know, like the type of learning where just to listen or read, and then I could, I could spit it back out on paper. But probably the 98% of y'all that don't like school, you're not geared that way. And, and I think they're finding out now more and more folks aren't really geared to learn well by just listening. And so a lot of people are more experiential learners where they have to do something. I, I read a quote. It's an old one, and, and uh, they don't, they're not really sure who said it, but it's, what I hear, I forget. What I see, I remember. What I do, I understand. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of folks. What I hear, I forget. What I see, I remember. But what I do, I understand. And, and if you've got more than one kid, you know, some of them learn by, you know, verbal cues, and some of them learn by experience. Like, you can tell one or two of them, hey, it's cold outside, it's rainy, go grab a jacket. And then the third one, you got to say, hey, go outside for about five minutes. No explanation. And then they come back in going, it's cold out there. I need a jacket. And you're like, ah, experiential learner. Great. All right. And so, like, tonight, man, we get to see through this whole chapter of Genesis where God is teaching Abraham through experience. And we've talked about back in the intro how when God gave us the book of Genesis, Genesis is history, but it's really selective history because he's covering like 2,500 years. And so he's got to be really selective in what he chooses to put in here. So Genesis is selecting accurate history in a way to preach theological truths. Genesis is theological history. So what we're doing is we're learning about God, theology. We're learning about God through how he acts. We're kind of seeing how he acts. We're able to pull these theological truths. I'm so thankful God didn't just plop down like a systematic theology book here and we just have to read, all right, God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Got it, you know, but he's showing us what he's like through how he acts. And here in this chapter, Abraham is getting a real experiential education. He is getting to actually walk with God in the flesh. He's getting to talk with God. In fact, if you were here last year, you remember, or last year, if you were here last week, you remember that in our story, that God himself appears in human form with two angels. And he comes to Abraham, who's sitting down, and he goes into his tent. You remember, Abraham plays the host and invites him in, says, oh, let me just give you a little morsel of bread. And then he's like, oh, we got to go all out. And he, prov he provides this giant kingly meal, and they sit down. And you remember in this story, it's Abraham and Sarah. Well, let, me, let me go back in the story. I'm not going to re-preach what Joseph preached last week, but I want to just look at what do we learn about God from last week's story? What's the theology that we're supposed to get from how God acts in this story? Because you have, in, in this story, it's not just three angels. The one angel is Yahweh. You can see that in the Hebrew. It is the Lord. So go back to verse 9 of chapter 18. They, the angels and Yahweh, said to Abraham, where's Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. And Yahweh said, 
I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Like, he's just reiterating. She's old, old, like old as dirt, old, old. And, and so Sarah, verse 12 says, Sarah laughed to herself and said, oh, so after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, am I supposed to have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah just laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord, says the Lord. It says, at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, and Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh because she was scared. And he said, no, you did laugh. It's a crazy story. For her to deny to the Lord, hey, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you did. You did. I heard it. What do we learn about God if we're thinking experiential education? Uh, not to re-preach the sermon, but what do we learn about God from this story? You think there are four huge points of theology that we learn, that Abraham learned. This is like his school of theology, and we're supposed to learn as well. Number one, we learn that he is a God that keeps his promises. He's going to do exactly what he says. And this time, he tells the promise to Sarah herself. We're going to see that promise come true in three chapters. Chapter 21, she bears a son. Second thing that we learn about God is that he's a God that knows and sees all. He asks where Sarah is, even though we don't have a record of Abraham saying her name or introducing her. He hears Sarah's laughs, even though she denies it. Third thing that we learn about God, he's a God that can do anything. Verse 14 to me is one of the key verses in all of Genesis and in all of the Bible when he says this, this one phrase, is anything too hard for the Lord? For real, write that verse down in your kitchen. Put, put it in your house because what he's saying is Sarah's hard heart, not too hard for the Lord. Sarah's lying and disbelief, that's not too hard for the Lord. This, this is a, a truth that I need to repeat to myself. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, we need to repeat this. No heart is too hard. No sin is too strong. No addiction is too strong. No habit is too strong. No people is too hard to reach. The Lord is stronger. The fourth theological point we get from that is that he is a God of grace then. Because you think about the grace that's given to Sarah when she laughs. She's already tried to take things into her own hands and do this promised child thing with her slave girl. And then God says, I'm going to give you a kid. And she laughs at God. And then God says, hey, you were laughing. She's like, mm-mm, I was not. And she lies to God. And God doesn't destroy her. That's what's crazy. She lies to God and then laughs at God. And he, and he shows her grace, which leads us to this section. Is God just? Does he forgive all sin? Does he just let it go? Or does he punish some? We're supposed to learn more theology through this story. All right, so we're going to jump right in. At this point, history has been made because Abraham, like Joseph mentioned last week, he is the only man to eat a meal with God that we have recorded before Jesus came to earth. Crazy story. So the meal's over. That whole incident just finished in the tent. Verse 16, it says this. Then the men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So he's a gracious host. Remember, he gave the meal. And now he's going to see off his guests. He's going to set them on their way. And what's crazy is he ate with God, and now he's walking with God. This is like Adam and Enoch before him. But there's a little bit of foreshadowing. 
Because you, you think, and Abraham probably thinks, this episode is over until God speaks. It says this, verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Think, picture the scene. You got these four, right? You have God himself, two angels, and Abraham. They're walking out, man, thanks for coming. It was great, man, that, that was great. You know, thanks for the promise again. Thanks for not killing my wife. We appreciate it. You know, and we'll see you. And it says they look down towards Sodom, and the Lord, Yahweh, turns towards the angels and said, should I tell, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? Why does he talk like that? What, is he really debating in his mind whether or not to clue Abraham in? I, I think he's speaking. <clears throat> I think he's speaking as one does in front of their kids at times. I, I've done this before. Like with my kids sometimes, when they were little, like, uh, you know, if I was asking Jed to go outside, uh, you know, when he was a little bitty at night and go feed the dogs or go do something, sometimes, not to coerce him, but sometimes I would say to Amy where he could hear, I would say something like, I don't know, Mama, I think Jed's really brave. I think he's really dependable. I think he can do this. We should let him do this. Why do I say that? Well, I say that so that Jed can feel what I feel about him. I'm revealing myself to Jed. I'm revealing how I feel about him. I, I do believe he's brave, and I do believe he's dependable. But I'm also confirming and encouraging him. He feels built up. He feels brave and, and capable. See, in this statement, God's not only revealing himself more to Abraham, but he's also confirming him. He's speaking in that way. Now, we know that God's going to speak against the wickedness of Sodom, and if you've read ahead, you know he's fixing to destroy these two cities. But what he's doing is he's revealing himself to Abraham more, even in the way that he speaks. Think of this. This is part of the school of theology. Even the way that he phrases things in front of and to Abraham is saying things about himself and his character. Because there's really, there's a threefold reason, I think, that God is going to reveal his plan that he's going to reveal he's going to destroy Sodom. So let me give you the three reasons. The first one is this. Number one, Abraham is going to be the father of all the nations of the earth. Look back at verse, uh, verse 17. Should I hide the, from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will, will be blessed in him? The reason he's going to reveal this to Abraham, reason number one, is that he is about to be the father of all nations on the earth, and he's going to be a, a blessing to all of them. See, Abraham's called a friend of God in James 2. He's chosen by God, and he's going to uh, carry this blessing to all the nations, and one of these nations is Sodom. God's going to let him in on the plans for this nation where his kinfolk lived, and the destruction of Sodom is going to prove to be a blessing to history as well, and we'll see why in a second. But the first reason he's going to reveal this to Abraham, what he's going to do with this nation, is because Abraham is going to be the father of nations and a blessing. Verse 19, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. Here's reason number two that I think God's going to reveal the, uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a subtle charge to Abraham to share these things with his family. Number one, he's going to be the father of nations. That's why I should re reveal it. Number two, I've chosen him to command his children, to command his household, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There's a subtle command in here. 
And this, what I'm about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, this is going to be part of the instruction of the Lord uh, by doing righteousness. It's going to be a historical teaching tool for thousands of years. What God's about to do in destroying Sodom is going to be a teaching tool for us and our kids. It's going to be a teaching tool for nations in between Abraham and us. God's also, in revealing his wrath, he's showing Abraham justice. He's showing him that sin needs to be punished. This is part of the theology school. There's a reminder to Abraham that when something happens on earth, some big event, some calamity, that God is at work. It isn't chance. The ruins of Sodom are going to be a permanent reminder of God's judgment. So, Abraham's going to be the father of nations. That's why he's going to reveal it. Abraham's supposed to to teach his kids. He's supposed to pass down this knowledge to his kids. And we we know that he does. Because how else do we know this story? We wouldn't know this story had Abraham not been faithful. Had he not handed it down to his kids. Verse 20. We're going to see reason number three. And this is why God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin is very grave or very serious. I'll go down to see whether they have done according, altogether according to the outcry that's come to me. And if not, I will know. Reason number three why God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah is that their sin is very, very serious. It is very grave. What was it? What was it that Sodom and Gomorrah were engaging in? Uh, There's a lot of things, and we're going to look into a specific example next week that is one of the darkest passages in all the Scripture, for sure. But it's not just what they were doing, what it was, but it was also how they were doing it. Isaiah Isaiah 3, we'll have it on the board, you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 3, it remembers this, it says, Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against him. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. They have brought evil on themselves. What this verse is saying is, it wasn't just that Sodom was sinning, and they were. But they were proclaiming their sin proudly. They were not ashamed of it. They were proud of it. This sin was great against God. It says, you're doing like Sodom did. Proud of your sin against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Their sin, first, it was great against the Lord. But the second thing is, look at, uh, we'll have on the board Jeremiah 23. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that nobody turns away from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. See, Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, they become like Sodom and Gomorrah. See, they're committing adultery, they're walking in lies, but it's not just that, they're strengthening the hands of the evildoers. They're encouraging others actively to persist in sin. See, their sin is great against the Lord, and they're oppressing other people by encouraging them, pushing them towards sin. So it's not just what Sodom and Gomorrah are doing, it's how they're doing it. They're encouraging sin, they're proudly sinning. Okay, so what sort of sins are they involved in? Brody's going to get into this more next week, but the sin of Sodom is remembered as unnatural desire. And that's a phrase generally used for homosexual desires and lifestyles and pursuits. Jude verse 7 says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire 
serve as, a, as, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, we're going to get more into that next week, especially the fact that unnatural desire is itself a judgment, a handing over to our own desires, which is scary. But I'll say it's easy to write off Sodom and Gomorrah for us. It's easy to write that off as like worst possible scenario. As well, when we hear the story from next week, which I'm telling you is dark, dark. When you hear the story of what goes on down there, it's easy to be like, well, at least we're not doing that. But we do well to keep in mind that Ezekiel tells us uh, about Sodom and Gomorrah and about their guilt. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Whoops. Because for us, it's easy to say, well, I didn't do that. That's recorded in the next chapter. But we might not be guilty of these rampant, violent, homosexual acts as described, but we may be guilty of this, ignoring the poor and needy. Sinning proudly, leading others to sin. Man, the sin of Sodom was great against God. It was oppressive uh, towards others. And he says, the outcry of the oppressed has reached me. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah has come to God. This is like a template in the Bible. You remember when Cain kills Abel? God asks a question that he already knows the answer to. Where's your brother? And the brother says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to keep track of him? And he says, no, your, your brother's blood is crying out to me. The outcry of your blo brother's blood has reached my ears. In Egypt, when the people are oppressed, the Lord says in, ex in Exodus 3, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. We should know this. Man, all of our deeds, but also all of our outcries are known to God. He hears us. If, if we're afflicted, he is the God who sees. Remember back in chapter 16, a couple chapters ago, when Hagar, when she runs away after Sarah mistreats her, God runs after her and she calls God the God who sees me. If you're in trouble, if you're mistreated, man, God sees you and he hears your outcry. And Sodom and Gomorrah are a testimony that God will not fail to punish the wicked and uphold the righteous. So when God says, I'll go down there, and I'll see whether they have done to, altogether according to the outcry that come to me. If not, I will know. Here's the question. Does God already know what's going on in the city? Yes, absolutely. It's not like he's like, you know what? I heard bad things are going on down there. Pause for a minute, Abraham. I'm going to go check it out. And if it is so, I'm going to destroy him. Does God already know? Yes. Why does he phrase it like that? It's for Abraham. What is he trying to teach him? Remember, this is the school of theology. Is there anything outside of God's knowledge? No. Uh, John Calvin puts it this way. When God proposes something as if he's not sure about it, he does so out of kindness to men. For he's already decided what he's going to do. Here he intended to make Abraham pay close attentions, attention to the reasons he gave for the destruction of Sodom. He's, he's making Abraham clue in to the reason he's going to destroy Sodom. It's going to teach Abraham about God's own character. It's God's grace that he reveals his plan to Abraham. He doesn't want Abraham to miss out on knowing God's character through his wrath. God is revealing himself more to Abraham. See, it's easy. Okay, so me and Amy... We had our 16th wedding anniversary. This was the last week. 
Uh, and so we've been married 16 years, great. So we finally, we went off for a trip uh, a little overnight, a couple nights ago. And we stayed at this hotel, and it was a fancy old hotel. And it was, uh, she had found out at this old hotel that there's a room in it that's supposed to be, like, haunted. Uh, because apparently a girl in the 20s was murdered there and all this. And so they have tours to go in this haunted room. And so Amy signed us up for a tour. And I was like, all right, here we go. And so they take us on this tour. Well, we get up there, and the tour guide is under the influence a little bit, uh, which already started the tour off on a funny note. And uh, he's slightly buzzed as he goes into the room with a ghost. And... uh, so we're with about six, so it's me and Amy and about six ladies, and we're there, we're there for the show, and they are there because they feel a connection <laughs> with this ghost. In fact, they've done all their research, and they know the story, and so when the God says, and it appears that she did not like men, and then they would jump in with like men with mustaches, tall men, tall men with mustaches, and because they had done their research on this story. So when they walked into that room, they saw everything through the lens of the supernatural. I mean everything. Like we walked in the room and they're like, ooh, it's cold, it's cold. Do you feel it's cold? It's cold. And me, me and Amy are going, the air conditioner's on. You know, like, and at one point this lady, and she was real country, she goes, she grabs the, the door to the closet, she goes, can I open this? And the guy's like, mm-hmm, yeah. And so she goes, Phew, and opens, opens the door super fast. And she goes, oh, the hangers are moving. The hangers are moving. I know it's her. It's her. And me and Amy are going, this is the best tour. And so we kind of wanted it to go on and on and on. But they finally were like, we're going to get out of here. And so we, we, we end up leaving. But my point is, when we walked in that room, we were seeing things through very different lenses. We were seeing things as, hey, this would be entertaining. Who all, is, who all is here? You know, and they were seeing it as, we're gonna see a ghost tonight. We're gonna see someone sitting on that bed right there. And so everything, they interpreted it through that lens. It's easy to read one of these stories and interpret Abraham's knowledge of God through our New Testament lens. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to think, well, Abraham already had a very um, like advanced you know, theology of God and his wrath and his mercy. But you got to remember, he came back from worshiping the moon god, Nana. And the moon god, Nana, had no wrath. That god was just a protector against his father, Enlil, and his crazy system. And so when we're thinking about what was Abraham's understanding, he's getting an understanding through this story. And God's given it to him by his phrasing, even. When he says, I will go down there to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that's come to me, and if not, I will know. Man, maybe God is showing Abraham that he is measured, that he is just in his wrath, that he does not fly off the handle, that he's not operating on rumor, that he's patient and measured. Of course, he's already got that knowledge. He's showing Abraham he's got that knowledge. Now, everybody knew that Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked. In fact, Abraham himself already knows what God's going to find down there. He assumes they're wicked in the city. Back in Genesis 13, it told us that Sodom was wicked. It says, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Abraham knows that they're wicked in the city. He just assumes there's righteous as well. He knows Lot is righteous. What's interesting 
is that God hasn't said he's going to destroy the city yet. But Abraham assumes that he is. Abraham knows that much. He at least probably knows the story from Babel because he lived with folks that were there, eyewitnesses that were at Babel probably, that their timelines overlap. He probably knows that when God went down to Babel, there's judgment. So he's probably assuming these guys are going down to Sodom. There's judgment, but God hadn't explicitly said what he's going to do. Verse 22, i got to hurry. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Yahweh. So the two angels head towards Sodom, and Abraham stood before the Lord himself. Here's what's crazy. God is giving space and time for Abraham to meet with him. It's incredible. He's pausing and just staying there and allowing Abraham to meet with him. Verse 23, Abraham drew near, drew near to God and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Let's suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous that are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the, the righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fare just like the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is an amazing little bit of intercession by Abraham. He is drawing near to Yahweh and asking for mercy. It's amazing and it's personal. And Abraham's heart is interesting because we might lean towards justice for the wicked, and mercy for the righteous. That's not what he's asking. He doesn't say, spare the righteous, kill the wicked, because where did he just come from? His tent, where his wife just lied to the Lord and laughed about it, and he, where did he just come from? A couple episodes ago where he just gave his wife over to a pharaoh and then to another king, and he didn't trust the Lord here and didn't trust the Lord here. Why is he arguing, don't destroy the wicked? Because he knows he's wicked. He's humble. If we get to the point where we forget that we are wicked, it's an easy point to fall into the same pride that Sodom had. He's interceding. We see Abraham's heart growing towards mercy, which is a fitting heart for the father of all nations. Abraham knows, he assumes, that God's not going to let calamity fall on the righteous. He's arguing for the whole city. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that there's none righteous, not one, and that sometimes natural calamity does fall on the just and unjust but here we see Abraham's heart verse 26 the Lord said remember Abraham asked they go down to Sodom Abraham's just standing there with the Lord and he says got it if there's 50 there please you're a just guy if there's 50 righteous we spare the whole city listen the Lord said if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city I'll spare the whole place for their sake what is that that's an answered prayer. God listens. He answers prayer. Do you believe that? Like God doesn't change. Yeah, he's not going to be bent to the requests of men, but sometimes we limit our theology to just that. Sometimes we're like, yeah, God's going to do what God's going to do, and he's sovereign, but we forget that he asks us to pray. We forget that he commands us to pray. We forget that God has ordered cert so that certain events will only take place if we pray. He has built these things into his system, into his creation. God, through prayer, lets men participate in history. Here's the miracle is that God listens to you. When you cry out, when you pray, God is listening. Prayer really does change things. The God of creation is listening to you. You're not servants. You're friends. You're children. If you're his, if you're, his, if you're, if you're a believer, you're his children. And now we get to go before the throne of God. I mean, there are some crazy promises. And let me just go through here real quickly. There's some crazy promises in Scripture about prayer. 
for real. John 16, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. That's crazy. James 5, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why prayer doesn't work. What I'm just saying is we don't dream big enough. We don't believe this portion of theology, that prayer changes things, that God has ordained that we pray so we can participate in it. Are you really praying for growth, for strength against temptation? Are we praying to be like Jesus? Spurgeon said, if you can have everything by asking in his name and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how vital prayer is. John Piper said, God can do more in five seconds than we can do more in, than we can do in five hours or five months or five years. This is one reason the habit of prayer is wise. Riken says, God can accomplish more through prayer than, than through all of our doing. God can accomplish more through prayer than by all of our doing. I want to read one, one little verse and um, then I got to continue this story. Luke 11. This is Jesus teaching how to pray. He says, which of you who has a friend will go into him at midnight and say to him, friend, give me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, don't bother me. The door is shut and my kids are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. This sounds like a real familiar story. Jesus is teaching how to pray. Hey, you all of a sudden have a visitor stop over at your house. DoorDash does not exist. Ingles is not open late. Walmart is not 24 hours. You got nothing. Which of you would not go over to your neighbor's house and be like, hey, man. I got some visitors over here. Can I have some bread? And your friend be like, go away. My kids are sleeping. Shut up. And then it says this. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he'll rise and give him whatever he needs. Think about that. He won't give him anything just based on friendship, but because he keeps asking, he'll give it to him. Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. One who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it'll be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will, instead of a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In this parable, Jesus says, he won't give the bread to his friend because he's his friend. He'll give it to him because he doesn't stop knocking. It seems to imply that God will only give some things because you ask, not just because of your relationship with him, because you ask. That's not like a genie situation. God's a good father. He's going to give what's best. But John Piper says, God has established prayer as the means by which we receive supernatural help. And without supernatural help, we cannot live a life worthy of the gospel. That's why prayer must be central, not peripheral to your life and family and ministry. So Abraham prays, will you spare it for 50? And God answers his prayer. Yeah, I'll spare it for 50. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am, I who am but dust and ashes. So suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And God said, I won't destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, for the sake of 40, I won't do it. And then he said, oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry. I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I won't do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. 
Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I won't destroy it. He said, oh Lord, let not the Lord be angry. And I'll speak again, just this one time. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he'd finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Abraham questioned the Lord, but not like Job. He admits humbly, in dust and ashes, he's undertaken a, a bold request. He's humble, but he's direct and persistent. And he argues down to just 10 men. And maybe Abraham thought there were 10 righteous in the city. And we know that there's not. Here's the question. Did God change his mind? No. He revealed his mind to Abraham. He revealed his merciful plan to Abraham. He revealed his character to Abraham. Yeah, if there was 50 righteous, I'd spare that city, but there's not. It's wicked. But Abraham gets to stand in the gap. He gets to, to be a sinful man pleading for sinful men. Now, we know how this is going to end. These cities are going to be destroyed, and only, only a few are going to be saved, and one of those is going to turn back. But God does this for Abraham to let him intercede for the people and, as a theology lesson, to reveal his wrath and his mercy. See, even though he showed justice to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's God's mercy to teach the lesson to Abraham and to his descendants and to us. Sodom stands as a reminder, 2 Peter 2. This is an exhortation, uh, exhortation to us, uh, to people in the New Testament and to us. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extin extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Sodom and Gomorrah are a lesson to us and to Abraham. And God's showing Abraham he's the one that brings blessings and curses. Whatever God ordains is right and just and merciful. Think of the theology lesson that Abraham received in this chapter. Eight things real quick. Number one, God always keeps his promises. Number two, God has grace on unbelief. Well, Sarah. Number three, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Number four, God is personal. He eats and walks with Abraham. Number five, God is a just judge and everything he does is right. But number six, he is patient and he's measured in his wrath. He's not flying off the handle. Number seven, he actually hears the outcry of the oppressed and he cares for them. And number eight, he listens to our prayers. How much theology is crammed into this story? So many things we hear about God. And we see that he actually does listen to Abraham's prayers. Genesis 19, spoiler alert at the end of this story. It says, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the mi middle of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God, when he's destroying these cities, he remembered the prayer. He remembered Abraham. Lot forever should be like, Abraham, thank you so much. Dude. For real, thank you so much for praying that prayer. Uh, you know, I got out and a couple, couple other people got out with me, but like God remembers Abraham. And we remember Abraham as an advocate and an interceder. Abraham stood in the breach and prayed for the wicked. He's an example in the scriptures. We see Moses doing the same later on. Later on in Psalm 106, it said, Therefore he said he would destroy them, 
had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. There are few characters in Scripture that stand in the breach and intercede for God's people. Now, I want to take the last two minutes and look at Jesus. Both of these men, Abraham and Moses, they just asked for mercy on the wicked. They couldn't cure the wickedness. That's what's key. See, they couldn't even appeal to the righteousness of Sodom or, or of Israel in Moses' case. They were sinful men appe- appealing for sinful men. But in our case, Christ himself is our advocate. And Christ did what Abraham and Moses could not do. First John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. See, an advocate's like a lawyer. They argue the innocence of their client. This is something Abraham couldn't do. He couldn't argue the innocence of Sodom. For us, we can't argue our own innocence. But here's the beauty of Christ as our advocate. He argues his innocence on our behalf. He doesn't point to our innocence. He points to his innocence, which is given to us. And when we sin, Christ stands in the breach to turn away wrath with his own innocence. He's the better advocate. And then like Abraham before him, Christ prays for us, Romans 8. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can condemn? Nobody. Christ took our condemnation, and now he's praying for us. And that's all of our hope. And thank God for that, and thank God for this story through which God reveals himself more to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for this story. Thank you that uh, Abraham didn't learn theology from a dry book. I thank you that we can learn theology by looking at how you act. That we don't just have to read facts on a page, Lord, but we can read a story and see how you act. That we can get to know you as a person. And Lord, I I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us. And I pray that for our part, God, that we would see ourselves as we truly are. I thank you for your innocence that was given to us. I thank you that you're our advocate. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.